there, everybody. It's Bree and Lainey. Welcome. Well, I got to tell you, we have a very special guest today. And to be honest, I'm not even quite sure how to introduce him. This is probably one of the guests that both Bree and I know the best. And so we kind of weren't sure how to even describe the magic that is Tom Murray. I don't know that there's enough words um, in the English language to describe how amazing he is. So I mean, maybe I'll just keep going until he gets really, you know, flush with embarrassment. But um, author, educator, leader, future ready, I don't know, Bree, just can you tell us, tell us a little bit about Tom and then I'll say how I know him. Um, I, I would sum Tom up in, in four words, learning transformed and personal and authentic, right? I think he, uh, you know, future ready, all of it, um, innovative leadership, all the things, um, just all around great guy and, and continual mentor of mine and, um, great friend. So that, that's, that would be my introduction. I won't share any stories that are supposed to be not shared publicly. So, uh, there you go. You definitely don't want to share things that were shared in private. Like when I met Tom years and years ago and I actually started talking to his wife, uh, I was on the cue board and I, it was my job to introduce our esteemed Tom Murray featured speaker, um, hero to education. And I, I didn't know him at the time. So I had to figure out how to introduce him. And so Mike Lawrence brilliantly suggested that I go talk to Tammy kind of nuzzle up to the wife who I love, by the way, um, see if I could get any stories. And so, you know, she mentioned that, you know, Tom landed in LAX, they rented a car and I believe, was it five seconds before LAPD pulled you over for something? Was, it, was that how long it was? I just think this concludes the episode. That's all I'm going to say at that point. <laughs> Luckily, we get to publish it. We don't have to. It was, it was about a minute and a half after I, I got my rental car that I got pulled over. That's that's correct. About a minute and a half. What was the what was the offense that you got pulled over for after a minute and a half in a car? So I was uh, following my ways. And so I pulled the ways. And as we were going, my wife was actually holding it and she's like, make a left. So I go to make a light. I go to make the left and I go to make the left and she goes, no, 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 no. All right. And I go right in the middle of the intersection near LAX to which there was a police officer there to which then when they rolled up to the car, I kindly said, look, I was just following my wife's directions, but she then laughed and said, where are you trying to go? I told him, he saw holding the ways, he directed us. I did not get a ticket. He was actually, saw I was in need. He was, that that was the purpose of all of that. So Lainey, I appreciate, you know, there you guys were being so so kind and so considerate ladies. I was gonna say, man, the checks I guess in the mail for that intro. And then Lainey pulls that story out. So uh, I just rescinded that check for that awesome intro up until that point. But yeah, thanks for throwing me under the uh, rental car to kick off the show. Pretty awesome. I mean, let's be real, Tom. The rest of this episode is going to be a total love fest because we adore you. So I just had to get something in there. And by the way, folks, I did actually use that in my intro for him for a room full of esteemed uh, participants. So it was fun. It was fun. That's I know. Fun. And That's by the way, I don't think I've ever been asked to introduce you again. Is there a correlation? Just Quincy. Yes, I, it's in my contract that uh, that okay. cannot work. <laughs> the writer, the writer, got it. Okay. So with that, in the in the interest of time, I will say that's such a great segue into our sweet and sour. Um, so so Tom, if you will share with us, uh, you know, it is tradition that at the Lemonade Learning Table. Um, virtual though it may be at this point, uh, that we share our sweet and sour. So what you got for us? So I'll start with my sour. And ladies, I love, even though you, you give me a hard time here, I love the episodes, love the podcast. I think you're doing a fabulous job with it. I'm going to start with my sour. 
my sour is I miss people. Like I miss being with people every day, side by side with people. You know, pre-COVID, I was flying three, four times a week, um, only typically getting pulled over afterwards, like uh, one time a year. Sorry. Thanks, Lainey. Um, but yeah, pre-COVID, I'm used to being with people, whether they're large groups or more intimate settings. And we do that all the time. I'm still working with school leaders all across the country and, you know, every day. But I just miss being around people. So that's the sour. And I'm guessing every listener can relate. You know, you know, we've got to take this COVID piece seriously. We have to keep our distances. And it's important that we all do so. We all wear our mask. But I just miss being around people. And whether it's people around the country or it's people even in my own neighborhood and close to home, that's my sour right now, just being real. And I think people can relate to that. Here's my sweet, though. The flip side to that is I still am getting to connect with school and district leaders all across the country. And they are doing such amazing things. I stand in awe of our teachers, of our principals, of our superintendents, who with adversity on the outside of our walls every single day, continue to do amazing things for kids, continue to step outside that box to try something new, to say, if we can't do it this way, we'll find a way to do it that way. And if we can't do it this way, we'll figure out a way to do it that way. And they continue to just kick down barriers for kids. And to me, that's the sweetest part of the work, because that's just watching the heart and the passion and the energy that people bring to the table to support those that we love and care about. I mean, it's contagious, right, Bree? Like Tom, when when I need a dose of like, help me get out of whatever maybe I'm struggling with, like I go straight to Tom on Twitter because I know he's got something positive. He definitely keeps it real, but he's so good at keeping it positive. And and how have you been able to maintain that through a through this very challenging time? I'm really yeah. curious. Well, thank you for your kind words, Lainey. I appreciate that. You know, I, I look, I really believe that we choose our own lens every day that we get up. We choose the way we see situations. And I think, you know, and I, I'm glad you complimented that with, with keeping it real, because I really just try and be real, try and be vulnerable. Let's not sugarcoat things. I think part of it comes from having been an administrator in the districts where we where a district where we just need to cut to the chase. We need to just be real. But then we also need to say, okay, where do we go from here? And I think in choosing that lens, we can see that whole like glass half full, glass half empty, you know, and when it's half empty, there's room to refill it. And so what I think when we look at those pieces, it's, it's, our kids need us to find ways to say, okay, if we can't do it this way in the midst of COVID, how can we do it that way? Our kids are not political pawns. Our kids, it's not their fault in the midst of what we're doing. And so looking at it and saying, okay, if we can't do certain things, what can we do? And I believe that's a, a mindset that's been instilled from my own dad. Like I watch him, he struggled with such health issues throughout my entire life. And I've watched his mindset of dealing with physical pain literally every day of my existence and my dad being in pain through some of the things that he's lived through. I've watched him still be a model for, I might be in pain and struggling every day as my father, but finding ways to see the good in life, finding ways to see the good in people. And so I believe in people, I believe especially in educators, those people that pour their life into other people's kids. And so we will get through this. And so it doesn't mean that I don't have days that I don't get down or days that I'm struggling personally. It's just, how do I relate? And I really believe we build off the energy of other people, kind of like you just alluded to. And so do I bring the energy to my meetings? Today, I've got like six Zoom calls. Do I find ways to bring the energy so my colleagues can be better for it and same can I learn and, and do the same for them and so you know when I was a teacher when I was a principal when I was a district level leader and now working with leaders across the country for me it's always how can I model what I expect on the other end or what I would want on the other end and recognizing the energy and passion that I bring into a room is my conscious choice every single day and when I don't do it it's going to also negatively impact the people around me so I'd look at it as it's my obligation to look at it like that 
right? It's social contagion, right? So you, it's, I love that you say that. Bree, what, what do you, what do you want to ask Tom? You got him on the spot here. I know you're probably, how many Zooms a week are you on with Tom? A lot. A lot. I, okay. I was going to say, lady, that's kind of setting it up because I get to work with Brie like all the time. We're basically colleagues through Future Ready. So she has seen and knows far more than the average listener. So so Brie, don't don't put a loaded question out there now. Now, Brie's an amazing colleague and it's awesome to work with her literally every day. So Brie, what do you got? Thank you. Thank you. So I, I'm going to um, I'm going to ask something based based off of some of the things that I am um, working through with with districts and with leaders and with with um, even my own children as they're going through school. And, and I know all of us on here are, are experiencing learning um, through COVID times through our, our kids' eyes as well. So how are you um, helping leaders and, and educators really kind of process in this very uncertain time where there is a ton of stress wrapped up in, in walking, just even walking into a classroom, whether you are walking into a classroom and um, recording yourself to then, you know, have it be presented out to your students, or you're in a face-to-face -face, um, socially distanced classroom or, or uh, being that administrator that's in there, there's so much stress that's wrapped around there. How are you helping people find, um, that balance, like you were talking about being vulnerable to where you are acknowledging there's a lot of stuff that's going on, but also, you know, modeling that positive attitude so that we're not, um, you know, setting forth an example for, for our students of, of anxiety or of irritation, but you know, how, what, what are some, some, you know, some, some words of wisdom that you could give to us around that? And thanks. That's a great question. And so, you know, and, and working with them, I'm going to go back to build off what I was really just talking about. First, it's modeling the expectations you expect to see from other people. You know, when I was a principal, when I was a district level leader, if I'm the person running around being like, the building's on fire, it's all coming down, this is crazy, this is never going to work. Like, what are my teachers going to think and react? right? If I'm the principal running around the building being like, this remote learning is terrible. And I, you know, I hate the governor and I can't do this and this isn't going to work. And that's not like, how are our teachers going to internalize that? Let's take it to another level. If I'm the teacher every day logging on and first saying, guys, like, I know we're stuck here doing this today. And I know like, this is not going to be as good as it was in the classroom. Like, how are our kids going to internalize that and respond? And so for me, it's, it's modeling the desired outcomes that we have. Like if I want, what is it that, that I expect for, from other people? And so then how do I model that in turn? That's the first thing. The second thing I also think we need to recognize and call it what it is. Like we're in the midst of a global pandemic and people are dying every day and people are really sick every day. And so the same fears that are on the outside of our school walls are on the inside of our school walls. The same things that parents are scared of, of in sending their own children back. I'm a dad, two little ones going back. Some of those fears that I have are some of the same things that my teachers are worried about with their own children in their own classrooms. And so whether we're, ed, you know, we're teaching and leading in classrooms or leading buildings or districts, it's recognizing like, we've just gotta be real and call it like it is. We can't sugarcoat this stuff because that's where people lose the respect. And so let's talk about the adversity. Here's what I know. I know that this is the first year we've ever opened in the midst of a global pandemic. The last time it happened, none of us were leading schools back in the early, what, 1900s, right? And so nobody's done that. But you know what I do know? 
this is not the first time that teachers have faced adversity. This is not the first time that principals have faced adversity, that superintendents, in fact, educators face adversity every single day. And so let's rely on each other's experience in dealing with adversity. I really believe like the legacy that we will all leave is really built in the moments where we don't know what to do. And in fact, like those moments, they're pretty much every single day. And so it's recognizing that the issues out there are real. If we're not focused on trauma and, and, and SEL more than ever before, we've completely lost our mind on what's important. And so in speaking on that, the next piece that I would say is it's an opportunity to refocus on what's in mo most important. You know, when I look back to March, I was connecting with, super, I still connect with superintendents literally every day that I'll shoot them a text just saying, hey, checking in on you. How you doing? How can I help you today? That kind of thing. And when we look back to March, when everything hit that weekend that everybody refers to around like March 13th, when all that stuff hit, that following Monday, what were people worried about? They weren't worried about the quarter three math benchmark assessment. They were worried about feeding children. They were worried about the safety of the kids. They were worried about making sure that their community had what it's needed in terms of basic essentials. And so I think it's, let's focus on what it is that matters most and not get so in the weeds that when we pair back, if it's not gonna matter a year or two from now, let's give those things a little bit less thought. And I guess the final piece that I'll add that comes to mind related to all of that is the idea around self-care. And I'll be vulnerable and real and say like, I'm terrible at that. Like on a given year, like I typically fly 140, 150 times going, going from here, going to there. And, you know, and we could talk about self-care and I recognize I'm not that good at it, but I found, I had to find ways to do it better and to be better with it. And it's so as leaders are being educators in the classroom focused on how do I make sure that my battery is charged for that following day for students? You know, like the analogy that I make in my book, Personal and Authentic is like, we charge our phones every single day but yet at night, like we rarely will recharge ourselves. Like, and we'll do it every day with our phones, but we'll go months sometimes without doing it ourselves. And so when I think about like where we are at this point in time, I think those are some of the most important aspects of working with leaders, like keeping it real, focus on what matters most, really bringing it back to our why. You know, I'm sure that's things that you guys have probably discussed on previous episodes around that why, because like our what and our how, like when we think about Cynic's Golden Circle, our what and our how have changed so much this year. They absolutely have, like a 99% of places they absolutely have, but our why hasn't at all. And staying hyper-focused on loving and caring about kids, what it is that matters most, but also not running over ourselves in the process. I love that. I love that you bring up um, Cynic's uh, golden circle and how we have to stay focused on that why. And there is a great opportunity now that we've kind of wiped away the traditional what and how to really rethink things. And so I wonder, um, you have a background in, I mean, you opened about an online school, like, you know, this world pre-COVID, not what we're dealing with now. Um, and you and I've had conversations about that's not an overnight thing. Um, these are things that take time. But I wonder if there's anything from that experience that you feel like could be applied to this. Because to me, online and blended, a lot of that comes from the why and rethinking the what and the how. So yeah. what do you think about that? So back, um, back in 2010, and I give my superintendent that I was working for at that point in time, she was an amazing visionary. She was talking about home access kids that didn't have it 10 years ago. She was talking about like we created. So being in Pennsylvania, the way it works is students that would leave the public school where we were to go to online cyber charter schools. We had maybe 30 of them at that point. Now, some states don't have them at all. Some states, uh, they're basically in that public school. That's where it are. Some states like California, if they leave, you just leave the funding 
funding aspect of it. You I'm sorry, you lose the funding aspect of it. Well, in Pennsylvania, if a child enrolls there, the public school actually pays for it. So we were servicing almost $2 million in kids that we never saw that we were paying for. Now they lived in our boundaries, but we were paying for them. We had no idea who they were and we were writing checks all the time. If it was a regular ed student 10 years ago, it cost about $12,000 because that was our per pupil allocation at that point in time. If it was a special education student at any, at any rate, if it was a student that had speech services even 20 times, that child cost $24,000 that we had to write a check to some random online school. And so our superintendent had the vision to say, well, if, if they're choosing to go there, we can look at that. And I love the perspective here in one of two ways. Number one, we can throw our hands up and be like, well, that's not fair. And the law shouldn't allow it. Or we can look at it and be like, why are they leaving us? Why they don't want, why don't they want to be here? And if they don't want to be here, let's create environments where they do want to come back because maybe it's something that we need to change. So we were one of the first public school districts in the nation to create our own virtual program taught by our public school teachers for K-12. And it opened a whole slew of doors for a variety of reasons. Part of my role in running that program is we've then brought back a lot of those students saying, look, you can log into classes that don't have an enrollments, by the way, of 130 kids that you can have a smaller class size with our own teachers that are here locally. And then it became the, hey, if you want to go to school as a high schooler and show up for period one and two on, 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 on site and maybe do your lab or do those things in person, but you want to do the rest of your courses online, you're a high schooler go do it. We can set that up, which then also became all of our girls in those few years that had gotten pregnant. They also graduated, by the way, because they had options to do it. Or we had students, we had a semi-pro snowboarder and she would disenroll quarter two and quarter three every year to travel the country, right? Well, now she stayed with us and she would go first and fourth quarter face to face. And then she'd go to our, our virtual courses, often taught by the same exact teachers. So she still stayed part of our community. It also then created questions around like, well, what if we do things virtually because like uh yeah virtual study hall like cross that off the list right i literally saw a district uh, somebody put out recently like i can't believe i have to supervise a study hall over zoom like i wanted to vomit being like please tell me that's something on the onion and that's not real right but it started to create kids started to say hey if i take these classes virtually because they're taught by our own teachers we could keep the budget tight it wasn't just like pay for all the kids and then as more kids enroll the budget expands for it that would have defeated part of our purpose but then it started to answer well if a child can graduate in high school in three and a half years are we going to stop them right and so it forced us to look at things that are so different than the normal structure and really look back at our core and being like, well, why would we get in their way for this? Why would we make them take a study hall as a 17 year old? Like, come on, come on people, right? And like, when we think about those examples and then it started to question things like attendance. And so what's been fascinating to watch for me and I haven't put a whole lot out there because I also working with so many schools and districts, I also don't wanna be the guy that looks like the ambulance chaser when I work with places being like, oh yeah, I can do that too but i have the experience and what i know is like the things that i'm seeing now and i keep saying like here's the next thing that's going to come up people are going to talk about special education and then that became a vote here's the next thing people are going to be like how do we take attendance in a secret right and all those pieces and so 10 years ago we were working with our state department being like how do we take attendance how can we invert they were so behind and not knocking pennsylvania it's a great state any state department was like what do you mean take attendance of anything behind somebody's butt in the seat and i literally am standing in Harrisburg being like, okay, tell me what attendance means. It's where a given person is at a given point in life. That's all it tells you. It tells you nothing about learning. It tells you what air they're breathing on a given day. That's it. 
Because you can have a kid show up, be present 180 times. We check it off 180 times and learn nothing. They sleep all day with their present. Check, we did our job, right? Like what a loser mentality that we've been stuck under in this like tr traditional mindset. So I said to, to them, so our, our environment then, those schools, those online schools at that point in time, what were they doing? The environment was for attendance was if the child logs in or not. And I literally, I laughed and I was like, so you're telling me if my dog logs in, I'm present for the day. Yep. Check. Right. And so then we created these pacing guides and said, well, if we're doing things asynchronously and some things were synchronous at that point, like, why would I care if a child did two hours of math on Monday and then took math off on Tuesday, if by the end of the week, they're where they needed to be or ahead? Because the moment I say, well, I care about that, like that's more about you than it is about them. What's the end goal here, right? And so we started to create this flexible structure where kids could work through that, work at their own pace. We created pacing guides for attendance to say, hey, by the end of the week, if you're here, or if you're working hard and your teacher can say, hey, they've been working with me, they might not be there, but they've been working with me on it all week long, you're present, you're present. And Pennsylvania was like, all right, well, it sounds good. Why? Because we're actually basing attendance on what kids were doing, not if they were just showing up and put their butt in the seat, right? Yeah. And so when we look at things like that, that like in retrospect, I think if somebody on the outside looked in, they'd be like, why do you do it that way? And we're like, well, I don't know. It's the way we've always done it. Now, in all fairness to educators, like we've been put in a structure, in a system to have to play by rules that are totally outdated in examples like that. And so when I reflect on that experience, I also have a lot of scars to prove it. We worked really closely with our teachers union because there were some really good things that they brought up that I totally agree with that could be issues. You know, if we went and I see this starting to happen already, where, and there's a lot of things that I see happening already, there are going to be massive issues if we're not careful, is like one of the things we had to work on with our teachers union is teachers needed time to plan and to create that course just like any other course. The very first year it started, I was actually still a principal and I wasn't there and our teachers were trying to create the courses online while teaching them simultaneously, which by the way is what the majority of teachers are forced to do right now. And yes. that's through kind of just the situation we're in. I will tell you that is a really, really difficult thing because creating the content and building in terms of an online course in those things is, is basically a full-time job in and of itself. And then to administer it, because then what starts to happen is kids might start to say like, hey, I'm past that point. And a teacher's like, oh, I'm not there yet. And then the kid's waiting on them. And again, I not throwing the teacher under the bus there at all. It's because they're being asked to do all sides of it. And so that's just another example related to those pieces. You know, our program evolved and it really got to, it took about three years for me as the director to get to the point was I was really comfortable with the teaching and learning that was happening in an online course. I wouldn't consider what happened in the, in the spring to be really, uh, to be real online learning, remote learning. That was like emergency online learning, in my opinion. That was kind of like, what can we do? And again, kudos to the teachers that turned everything over, over a weekend. It's not knocking them at all. I mean, they were putting in unfair place completely. I think a couple things. Number one, moving forward, um, what part of what we had, just, uh, going back to the teachers union piece there, and we had a great union, very strong union, but they were really incredible people. And, you know, some of their concerns were, okay, if I teach this online course, are you going to dump 82 kids in it because it's an online course? And, you don't, and that's a legitimate issue because doing things when you've got even 30 students virtually, 30 students virtually is more challenging than 30 students face-to-face because -face. I'm interacting one-on-one -on -one with so many of those kids at a given time. It takes more time. Anybody that tells you that's not the case has never taught online, right? So that, that's one piece. I think another piece moving forward as we think about it, I think we have to start to prepare for after pandemic, some parents are going to come back to us and say, I want to continue this. For sure. Now what? That's happening. And, 
And yeah. so in Pennsylvania, places where the funding is given by the district, it's gonna be creating massive budget gaps. Now, these budget issues have always existed and districts have started to create a lot of their own programs over the past decade in, in states like Pennsylvania where it becomes huge budget busters. But the flip side is it's not going away. It's only gonna to continue to grow uh, post COVID. And so my hope is that districts see this as this is an opportunity to create opportunities for students moving forward that down the road will give additional opportunities, additional content experience and those kinds of things. And not looking at this as like, we're just gonna get by this year and do the best we can. This year is an investment into foundational years to come for opportunities for kids. So I could go on and on and on about the experience of creating and building that online program. And I will give a shout out to the teachers then and now that are saying we'll find new and different ways to do it um, for the kids that we serve. So Tom, poor Brie, um, and she's with me on this, but she has had to hear me lament about this for so long. And I really appreciate, you know, the, the, to just to be clear, so lamenting on like what happened in the spring, God bless you teachers, what you did was miraculous. You were not given any support and you're totally right. Developing online content is a full-time job and delivering it is a full-time job. So that's been a struggle. Um, and really the, the mindset shift from compliance to competency and to, and you know, just to kind of throw your book in there, the personal and the authentic piece of online learning. And just to be totally transparent, Tom, you and I had this conversation. I call, you were one of the first phone calls I made in March when um, we started this crazy cuckoo banana time where I was like, oh my gosh, like, we have the experience. Like, what are we gonna do? Because we kind of knew well, this is a fire. Like we can't, we can't jump out and be like, and we've got the solutions because this is, that was choice. Yeah. This, this, the kids you're talking what? about that left were ch by choice. They wanted online learning. This is not choice. So we're in a different situation there too. Yeah. One of the biggest concerns I have right now and working with so many districts and, and I was spent a lot of time and especially the early summer working with districts and helping them think through and really develop their plan and point out some pitfalls that again, unless you've been there and done that, you may not see, you know, a lot of districts, they I've seen districts with the, the online piece talking about that specifically take two different approaches. One being, you know, we'll split our kids, we'll do some virtual, some face-to-face, -face, split them again at times, and we'll have this teacher be kind of the full-time virtual teacher. Yeah. That, and, and my the model that they've seen there, I can support that in the sense of, again, that full-time virtual teacher working with full-time virtual kids, they've, uh, in most cases, they've chosen it, unless the whole district is that, you know, they, they know what to expect, you know, those pieces moving forward, at least there, there's some of that. Who I really have empathy for right now are teachers that are trying to do an A-B model, sometimes every other day and are also simultaneously are, uh, in charge of their, of their virtual students full-time. Yep. I will honestly tell you, I have no idea how you can do that well. Having run a virtual program and supervised dozens of teachers and hundreds of courses, you're, that's a recipe to fail. Now, if it's looked at as like, this is worst case scenario, but what if it's not? Because here's the flip side. Like, I will give educators all the grace in the world. But we're also what, how many months into the pandemic? Six. So if we're still sitting here a year from now with COVID as it is, like parents are only gonna give us so much grace at the beginning of next school year to be like, we're gonna try and figure it out. We're gonna try and figure it out, right? And I get it. I say that with an empathy lens, I really do. But you know, a year from now, now if I'm a high schooler, it's been half my high school career. 
right? Yeah. And so I think when we look at those pieces, it's yes, we need to, to lead with an empathy lens here, but we can't put teachers in bad spots where they're gonna be set up to fail. I really, really worry about the mental health of teachers for this year, especially because inherently they wanna do a good job. Inherently they take pride in their work. And so to put them in an environment where I basically have three classes that, I'm, uh, that I have to do simultaneously that's a recipe to fail. I've seen districts, the district where I live, I think has done a phenomenal job of, you know, taking the school day, shortening it so that uh, we as parents know if you're home doing your remote learning pieces, your teacher will be available after this time because we get she's doing something there. Uh, and, you know, and then they, then it flips and it's the same for the other kids. And they've done a really good job of training teachers, giving some support, phasing things in, communicating with parents. And so lots of districts are doing really, really good, uh, good work in this area. But if we're asking teachers to do full-time virtual and full-time face-to-face simultaneously, here's what's going to start to happen. Parents that are full-time virtual are going to start to say like, what about us? Where's my teaching? And I know what the answer is going to, well, we got a camera in the back of the room that's capturing all that. Like, and it's, and, it, and it's on a uh, device that follows right, the teacher. Right. So tell that, like having a first grade little boy, like <laughs> that's not the scenario we're under at all. But no. like, if I told my first grade little boy to just watch the Zoom to watch my the teacher do it, like his attention span would be, be tough. And I, I know if you're listening to this podcast, please know I say that with the utmost respect to educators. But having run those programs, I see some of these things coming and it's just like the massive issues that are going to happen here when it comes to that. Um, but we could talk about some of the real issues that come with it, like the lack of funding that's there. Part of what we do at, at, in Washington, D.C. is advocate Congress for additional funding. We worked on some of the CARES funding and some of those things to support districts because simultaneously their budgets are getting cut. In many states, when kids leave, their budgets are dwindling again. And now we're trying to socially distance and do virtual with dwindling budgets. And so it becomes a lose-lose-lose scenario. But I say all that saying, going back to we choose our lens, there are so many principles, so many superintendents, so many teachers that are just doing amazing, amazing things every day, creating new experiences for kids, making it meaningful and not just saying, we'll just get through it. But looking at it as like, no, let's make this a really, really good year because that's a mindset piece there too. Because I, and I want to give kudos to those folks as well, but remind them like they've got to take care of themselves in this process because otherwise they're going to burn themselves out real quick. Absolutely. I love the, the, the conversation around the mindset because I do think that so many of us are falling into that role where we're saying, okay, we just have to get through it, right? And, and when that happens, then it, it is, I mean, we saw it at the end of last year, right? Of the, okay, well, we've just got to get to, to graduation and then things will be back to normal in the fall, right? And then if we weren't planning for that um, and, and many, you know, many school districts weren't because they were waiting on, you know, things from states, things from district, uh, all across the board of, of what kind of direction are we getting, um, then, then, you know, there was a, a, a delay in preparation coming into it. But I love your, you know, your advice on instead of just thinking this is something to, to kind of slog through and get there, think about all the different steps that'll come into it. I know I've had lots of conversations around this is, you know, snow days and, um, you know, illness or, you know, any of those different situations, even if we quote unquote, go back to the normal that we all knew, there's always time when we have either students or teachers that are out of the classroom for some situation and, and why not prepare for that in, in that lens. Um, which brings me to, to this question that I have around support and, um, especially, you know, you were talking about 
from the teacher perspective, from the um, from the administrator perspective, how do we you know, communicate with our students, but also communicating with parents? Because one of the things that I've heard over and over again is that we're almost kind of setting ourselves up for failure in this way, because we're saying, hey, we don't have the answers. We're being vulnerable by saying we don't have the answers. But with that, we're also saying, but we believe in you. And we're not sure about how to give that support to the classroom because we don't know what it looks like. But at the same time, especially in those districts where it is up to um, family choice as to whether or not you're attending face-to-face -face or you're choosing the virtual option, um, parents might not have a real clear picture of over which, you know, which choice to make because what does face-to-face -face look like? We don't really 100% know. And what does virtual look like? We don't really 100% know. And so, you know, in those situations, um, how, how do you think, um, it, what's a good approach to kind of start baby stepping some of that so that we can provide the support that's necessary for the different stakeholders to get everybody back on that same page, because I, I do think that we're entering into a part of this pandemic where we're finding ourselves um, kind of falling apart, uh, if you will, as opposed to like in the spring, we saw lots of families, lots of, of, of communities coming together around school. And now we're kind of finding ourselves back into that situation where it's like, what team are you gonna be on and what information is coming in around that? So, so what are your thoughts on that? Start by asking them, because here's what happens. We often as educators and as leaders create solutions where we don't ask the people that we're trying to serve what they think or to be part of it. Like when I was a teacher, the very first time I set up a classroom, I did it totally on what Tom thought. And the 28 little kids that rolled in the next day had no voice, no choice, no thought in the mix. Yet it was 28 of their lives and just one of mine as opposed to saying like, hey, this is our classroom, this is our community, how can we do it? So let's back that up. If we're not asking parents for feedback a few weeks into the year, we've missed an opportunity. If we're not asking teachers for feedback a few weeks into the year, we've missed an opportunity. If we're not asking students for feedback a few weeks into the year, we're missing an opportunity. One of the things that I, I think back to April last year, a few weeks into the pandemic, my son's kindergarten teacher and bless her, she is an amazing, amazing individual. She reached out to parents and said, moms and dads, I wanna do two meetings. You can choose either one. So one was during the day, one was at night. She recognized parents were working. That's the whole aspect of all other aspect of all this as well. And she put out to parents, I simply want to have a conversation on how things are going. So I listened in and just listened to the conversation and wanted to offer her some positive feedback. And she put it out there to moms and dads and said, listen, the past couple of weeks as we've done this, I've done my hardest to make, I've got, I've worked really hard to make sure that you know where things are, you know what the expectations are, where you can find assignments, how to communicate, how to turn things in, where my lessons will be. Tell me what I can do better, what's not working. The vulnerability of a teacher to put herself out there on a live call with parents where you don't know what's coming because you know, like things might be said, right? But to open it up, I gained, I mean, I had a tremendous amount of respect for her to begin with, but just to put it out there and hear moms say like, hey, you know, I really like it when you organize this way. And then a dad say, one of the things I'm not sure of, but she asked the question. Right. Like we make so many assumptions and then we make judgments based on assumptions. And then the end user doesn't even realize the whole process they got in there because they've been a part of that. And so asking students the flip side, not just what isn't working, but what is working. Because at the end of last year, some districts did a really intentional, great job of surveying students and families. Okay, from March to May, what worked? 
maybe even saying from March to May, if we went, you know, back face to face full time, what would you want to continue that we started doing that we hadn't done previously? Like, that's a great question. Get feedback on that. Right. And so I think making sure that the people that we're trying to solve problems for are actually a vital part of the solution. Some districts did an incredible job of making sure that teachers were part of the reopening plan. Some never had a conversation with them until they presented it. Yeah. And so like, if we're going to ask people to be the, the end user, the student or the teacher, whatever that might be, they have to be a vital part of that. And to me, that has to be a basic like foundational belief of leadership of that feedback loop matters and the voice and the input of our stakeholders matters. Because if it's just people sitting at a cabinet level, and I've been there, people just sitting at a cabinet level making the decisions for the whole and the whole doesn't have the, the some, like the, uh, the insight and the input, like it's, it's not sustainable. And I think that's a huge aspect of it. Yeah. It can't be about us without us, right? Like it has to have every person who's in it be a part of that conversation. Right. And just, I mean, process the amount of districts that will say, or buildings that will say like, we're kid centered, we're learner centered. Like that's not a slogan. That shows that like everything we do, kids are at the center of it. Right. Kids are at the heart because we can't say we're learner centered and then never have them as part of our input and in our decision making. And so I think right now and I, I where I do have deep empathy for is for districts where and I think about my area here, you know, our governor changed things literally a week before school started and then schools were scrambling. To, that's not a fault of any sort of district. That's not that's just the reality of of controlling the controllables. And, you know, then parents are getting upset. I just when I looked at things like Facebook comments, I try not to do that newspaper comments online. And, you know, like our administrators, our superintendents, our boards were just being thrashed left to right. Yeah. Now, some probably lacked the vision and the planning that they needed. But I will tell you, I, I spent so much time this summer with superintendents and administrative teams who didn't sleep, who didn't take a summer vacation, who got nothing more than like the July 4th day off because they were working around the clock to prepare. And so I think the communication going back to it, but our stakeholders have to be a part of that. We're really good at saying things like that in education, but not often really good at doing it. And I, I would also argue, I, I feel like we're not strong in being transparent about how we're applying the feedback once we ask for it. Because <laughs> like going back to um, Caden's kindergarten teacher last year, how, how she said, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do this. How am I doing? What could I do better? So she's being super clear about what she's trying to accomplish. And then when she gets that feedback, she can say, okay, so I tried this and I tried this and is it worth like keep going with it? It's, it's, I know that there's like been some memes and some really funny videos out there about like, so I'm doing my fifth survey for the district, but the district never talks about how they took the data because all I know is how Lainey Rowell filled it out and Lainey Rowell, she knows a lot. No, I'm just kidding. But um, Lainey Rowell has this opinion and I'm an educator and I have a very different perspective than potentially everyone else in my neighborhood. And when the district takes that data and they don't make it public to say, well, this is what people said. I just feel like if it doesn't go the way I wanted it to, we told them, why didn't yeah. they do what we said? Well, maybe they actually did do what we said. It's just not what I said. And so that I think is a challenge too. You know, sometimes when I'm working with a district, some, I'll hear the comment of like, well, we surveyed teachers and only one in 10 actually responded. And I'll be like, well, let's dive into that. Why did nine out of 10 teachers see no value in responding? Because that's the flip side of that coin. Nine out of 10 of those teachers said, I'm not going to do it. Why do you think that might be the case? Like, let's get to the root of that. Because quite often, exactly what you said happens. I ask people, give me feedback. 
and then nobody ever sees anything come from it. Now, it doesn't mean that things didn't actually happen behind the scenes, Absolutely. but the perception, which of course we know is their reality, their perception was that nothing happened. So if we ask people to fill out surveys and fill out surveys and fill out surveys and they never see any sort of result that they're gonna stop taking the time. When I was a tech director for a couple of years, I walked into a system where people never filled out work orders. And we would ask like, well, I went over there and they're like, well, why don't they don't fill out work orders and the department's all, nobody fills out the work orders. That's why we're done doing it. I'm like, because nobody hears any communication. They fill out the work order and nobody does anything with it. Nobody ever finds anything out. So people are gonna stop you know, filling it out. Like, why is that rocket science, right? And so like, if we're gonna ask for feedback, I believe we have the moral and ethical obligation to actually do something with it. And I think you're hitting on just such a strong point. I think every teacher can relate to that from a professional learning end, but also means, hey, if I'm a teacher gonna survey my students, and again, if it's a first grade versus a 12th grade, that's gonna look different, but gaining their feedback and then recognizing and showing them, you know, and I think, and I, I shout out to my, my, the teachers this year, uh, Paisley has Mrs. Kleckner, an amazing fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Thomas for Caden in second grade, uh, for first grade, uh, losing my mind here a minute, and in first grade, join the club, join the club. Pa pa Paisley had her for second grade, that's why I said that, but like amazing teachers this year as well, super organized, communicating so well, working their hearts out, sharing kind of like, here's why we're doing this parents, I'm gonna send it home, here's what we need and why, but they're getting lots of feedback. I think communication and parent feedback, at least where I've been, has been better than ever before because that communication is really constant in that. It does put pressure on our educators in that regard, but we really do have to communicate, especially when kids are home. I mean, let's face it, we have seven, six, seven, eight-year-olds that are home completely alone right now that first and second grade teachers have no idea that they're actually completely home alone. And if we're starting to make the judgment of like, can't believe Johnny didn't log in yet again today. And yet like little Johnny, seven years old that like barely made himself breakfast that morning because mom and dad are at work. Like if we don't have the mindset that those things are happening right now, that's on us. That's not on our kids. So true. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing I would offer while we're talking about surveys before we move on real quick is that um, we have to be intentional about the questions that we're asking to make sure that we're getting them we're getting the feedback that we want, right? Like so often we'll use the surveys to be like, did they get connected? Which is certainly very important, but if that's the only information that's going out there, what does it communicate to our stakeholders? That really all we care about is, did you have a hotspot? We don't care if the learning worked the way that we you know, expected it to. So we have to phrase our questions to make sure that it's adequately reflecting what we're asking and, and, and not just, check, 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 check box on, on what all of those right. elements are. So. It's like asking the question, like, how awesome is our district? And your responses are like, awesome or the most awesome. And then you're like, hey, 100% of the people said we're doing a good job, right? Like, we've got to be really intentional about that and give open response feedback as well. And then also be conscious of different language needs and those kinds of things too. You know, um, I know sometimes like we'll work with districts and it's like, well, how'd you send the survey out? Oh, we did it by email. So let's follow up and say, okay, like that makes sense. How did you consciously reach out to every person that doesn't have the electronics at home to be able to do it? Cause their voice matters too. Right. Oh, right. And making sure that our marginalized groups are prioritized in those regards too. Absolutely. I know, I know we only have you for a little bit longer and I so appreciate this. And by the way, I could totally geek out on surveys because I feel like it's a true art and a true science because doing those is just mind blowing to me. Um, and I've had to do a lot of bad ones in my life and I probably put out a lot of bad ones too, but I do want to be really intentional with that. So I'm hesitant for those of you who are watching this, I'm hesitant to put up Tom's book because he will see all of the tags with the stickies and I really, don't know if his ego needs that because I, I feel like you, you did it just before the podcast. Don't kid anybody. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, wait, wait to out me. Uh, but so 
I, I want to kind of conclude with, and Bree, feel free to jump in here, but one of the things that we've been super lucky in, and, and we're, we're fast and loose, we're, we're not super intentional on this show, but we are super intentional in who we bring in because we want to hear what their thoughts are through the lens of where we are now. And I've said on this show before, I think in two years, in five years, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, oh my gosh, we were so in it. We didn't even understand the level. Um, but but while we're in it, like what is that we can take from personal and authentic? And you have so many books, but I'm kind of focusing on personal and authentic because I feel like this is super important right now, right? Like this was a book written pre-COVID um, that could not be more relevant. And so looking through that lens of personal and authentic, what do we need to be doing? And I'm so sorry we don't have enough time to go too deep into this because I know you have another meeting to get to, but what do we need? What do we need to get out of this? I think we need to take deep reflection in how how do we really get to know our kids? One of the stories that I tell in chapter three is about my own daughter and I share part of her medical journey that she's had. She was born with insane severe food allergies. We almost lost her three times because of literally like one seed of sesame. EpiPens have saved her life. And I share part of her story. Um, and then I share some of the data, you know, in a, in a year and a half period, she missed like 35 days of school. She was tardy 20 times. And if people just looked at the data Data. And I'll often, when I'm doing a workshop or working with folks, I'll put data up on a screen and say, like, what are the judgments people might make? Let's pretend you're getting this student tomorrow. All we know in the past 14 months, they've been absent 35 times, they've been tardy 20 times. What are some judgments that people might make? And I've done that with literally 2,000 people in a room, gone around, pointed at people, give me something, give me something. And here's what we start to get. Why is the kid lazy? Why are they disconnected? Parents obviously don't care. Maybe she's pregnant. Maybe there's drugs, staying up all night. Maybe she's working, going on and on and on. And then I flip to the next slide and I say, so here's the next part of the story. That's my little girl. That's my daughter. And I'll have introduced her in the opening. And the place goes silent with a... <gasps> couple times. Then of course I joke being like, thanks for saying parents are a mess. Like that was me, baby. That was me. Cause the, the key, the, the real the key piece here is like, I really believe. And as I wrote in personal authentic, that the difference between making a judgment and having empathy, it's understanding the story. And we're living at a time where the stories are all over the place. And every single child that comes to us, whether it's in an online setting or in a, in a, in a setting in a classroom, like has stories, so stories of racism, Stories of neglect, stories of hope, stories of opportunity, stories of wealth, stories of having nothing at home. Story, and we could go on and on. And those are the stories that come to us. Those are the stories that we hop on a Zoom. So yeah, we need to be really intentional when we start mandating your camera has to be on and no snacks near and all those things. Because if we're doing those things, not leading with an empathy lens, what if I'm the student that doesn't want to show behind me because I have 14 people living in my two bedroom house and it's dirty and I'm kind of embarrassed by that versus the like, well, as the teacher, I didn't think about that because I don't have that in my house. So leading with an empathy lens. And so I share that part of personal authentic, getting the, the hidden stories within. Because if my little girl walked into that classroom and a huge shout out to her teachers who have been amazing with it, you would look at her and have no idea of the battles that she fights. And how now on Mondays, she goes to a new therapy for her tree nut allergies. And she's going probably over the next year to be able to do that of the battles that she fights. And I can share that with my little girl's permission, but recognizing that's just one girl. That's just one story. Every child that comes to us has that story. But the flip side is every adult does as well. And sometimes as I share that, sometimes people put in like, but we're not, we're not going to know all the stories. Like, you know, and, and I get where it's coming from because it's also true. 
but it's why we need to lead with an empathy lens in those cases and recognize, you know, it's kind of that adage of people, everybody's dealing with, dealing with some sort of issue that we can't see, you know, and that, that mindset's been out there for a long time. And so leading with an empathy lens right now is more important than ever, not rushing to judgment. You know, if a child's not logging in multiple times, like instead of making a judgment about the child, bring back and ask why, like, are there supports at home different than maybe what you had as a teacher? You know, is there reasons they can't connect or other reasons and, and not rush to those judgments, but trying to lead with empathy. And I think if there's one message that we could share right now, it's having the heart and seeing kids as a world of potential and seeing their heart, seeing their struggles, being more on top of SEL and trauma-informed type decision-making than ever before, because um, that's just where we need it. Let's, let's recognize the, the, um, the chaos and the adversity on the outside of our walls and recognize it's gonna spill into our classrooms and into our buildings colleague to colleague as well. Our work is about people and we can't lose sight of that. And you never do, Tom. And by the way, the article you wrote about Paisley uh, when you're talking about sleeping in her room and, okay, I've already cried enough on this podcast, so I'm not going to get into it. But um, I think you lead with such heart and such empathy. Um, I don't get to work with you as much as Bree, so I feel like I might have asked more questions because I'm like so excited to have more time with you. We don't get a lot of time together, but I'm so grateful for you. Please continue all the amazing work you're doing. Really, really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Lainey. It's an honor to be here and thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. It was great to see you. Um, I, will, I will definitely, as, as a uh, story buff myself, um, you know, I think that I, I like to say that empathy only comes through story. And I think that, you know, I, I love that you keep that, that focus on there and we have to hear the stories in order to, um, uh, we have to listen first before we can share. And I think that uh, it's so important that we, that we hear those stories, that we see those stories, that we recognize that um, while our students may come with a file folder that tells you if there's um, a, a medical need, it might not tell you about their housing need or their emotional need or um, you know, their, their other situations. And we certainly don't get those files for our colleagues or for the parents. And so we need to take that time to, um, to connect and to listen and to keep that connection. It's not just a one time a year kind of thing. So thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us and for believing in um, us as we all kind of fumble our way and, and figure out this whole, um, pandemic situation and, and all of the, all of 2020's wonderment. So we appreciate it. Thanks for helping awesome. us take all these lemons and make some lemonade out of it. Thanks ladies. Thanks for being here. Thanks right. Tom. Have a Tom. great day. Thanks for listening.